0: Welcome to the Day Health Strategies podcast, Unlocking Accountable Care, Conversations on Healthcare Reform. This podcast features experts in the field talking about the most salient issues in healthcare reform. Welcome to another episode of Unlocking Accountable Care. I'm your host, Emily George, and I'm here today with Julian Dormitzer, a nurse practitioner at a community health center here in Boston. Welcome to the show, Julian. Thanks, great to be here. We're so excited to have you on the show today. You've had quite a bit of experience providing direct patient care within the Boston area, and you're also a researcher who implements clinical trials for adolescents who are living with HIV or at risk for HIV, and I know you've had a really interesting career journey,
1: and I was wondering if you could just start with sharing with us a little bit about that. Sure. I knew um, even after graduating high school that I'd hoped to work in healthcare in some way, and uh, went to school at Grand Valley State in Michigan, went and decided to pursue nursing as my bachelor's degree, and I did several rotations in, you know, the um, acute care setting in hospitals. Worked as a nurse assistant on a neurosurgery floor and um, enjoyed that work, but knew that I wanted to be a little bit more community-based and see people in their daily lives, not in, in such a controlled context as in inpatient care. And so I. Um landed interestingly first in clinical research as a clinical research nurse because it was based in a community health center and it was very close to the population. We've um, been working within the population. I was passionate about young people who are at risk for HIV and men who have sex with men who are living with HIV. Um, and so I, I worked in clinical research for about five years and in that role, um, not only learned about how to implement a trial, how to problem solve, in terms of recruitment and retention, reaching communities and connecting with communities who are um, vulnerable and have been mistreated historically in research, I learned a lot about communication and and connection, building trust in a healthcare context. Um, throughout that time, I also decided that I was interested and eager to be a provider to have a little more responsibility as in the healthcare world. And so I started to pursue a nurse practitioner degree and just finished that up fairly recently. And now I'm working three days in primary care and continuing the research work two days a week. And throughout that time, I've I've also always been interested in policy and politics. I think if I could have two full-fledged careers, maybe I would pursue policy or um, law school because it really does interest me. It's part of the reason why I, the primary care setting interests me so much because I do think you can think about um, policy around social determinants of health and how that impacts your patient care and your patient's health. So throughout my work as a clinical research nurse, I decided to apply for the Mass Commission on LGBTQ youth. and spent four or five years working with people from a variety of disciplines who were passionate about LGBTQ youth as well and worked on several uh, policy goals and policy policy initiatives with them to improve the lives of young people across the state. Wow
0: this is so fascinating and can you just talk a little bit more about how did did you marry those two interests together And, and where did that come from?
1: Why were you interested in doing that? Um I think I I did grow up in a home where politics and um kind of the news and policy was discussed regularly. My my both my parents just have an interest and in, as a family we discuss uh, a lot of current events and what's going on in Washington or how these things may impact people living in Michigan. And so I've, I've just always been um interested in in policy, politics, democracy, how, how people vote and how they feel that impacts their lives positively or negatively. And in my free time, I actually find myself reading more about kind of policy and politics than about maybe clinical care. I'm balancing that out as a new provider because I have a lot to learn. But so those were just kind of natural interests of mine. And part of what drew me to HIV was how policy has driven the HIV epidemic, epidemic in our country and internationally too. I think that social issues are so you can't really separate them from from hiv infection and um, the hiv epidemic and so that's why it was an interest of mine even out of nursing school and so when i landed working in clinical research it was very kind of cutting edge what what are the new treatment regimens what are new and innovative ways to prevent hiv and um, on an individual level figuring out if a certain biomedical intervention works but then there's the whole question of how you deliver it to a large group of people, how you help communities trust a new intervention. Um, and then how can you really affect a community with that individual level change. And that's where the commission came in. An, an email was circulated in my workplace that the commission was looking for new members and there was a, an application and interview process. And as a young person, eager to just learn and be exposed to many things, feeling like I did have time in the evenings or time on the weekends to devote to an, some extra responsibilities I decided to apply. And um, it ended up being kind of exactly what I had hoped it would be, which was meetings in the evening um, at the Department of Public Health, learning from people who were already embedded in government. We had area professors who just wanted to continue to give back and contribute to the lives of young people on a kind of 10,000-foot scale, knowing that they were beyond their years of direct service. Um, and we had leaders in the community that have led community-based organizations for decades who could provide historical perspective on how the commission came to be and you know where we were going and how important it was to have support from people like the governor and um, the Senate. Every year we would go through a process of making sure we would be covered in the next year's budget, um, appealing for more money if we had a specific initiative we hope to move forward. We, we would spend time at the State House, you know, talking to people, doing listening sessions, brown bag sessions with legislators, and all of that was a really interesting process to be a part of.
0: Wow. That sounds like such an incredible experience. And can you talk a little bit, maybe more, about um, the ways in which some of those, like, the things that you were doing with the commission played out in the way that you were providing care as a nurse um, at this community health center or the way that you were implementing these trials, building trust with
1: the community, How did you how did you marry those things together? Yeah, I can think of um, a few specific examples. We often would f- have young people enroll in our trials who had uh, maybe had sex ed as part of their curriculum in school maybe not. That's not a a mandate. The only kind of mandate in Massachusetts is if you're going to offer sex ed, it has to be accurate information. But school districts can still choose not to offer it at all. And so we would draw youth from many different school districts who had varying backgrounds and varying information around sexual health. And a unique thing about the research we were doing is um, because of the sensitive nature around sexual identity and gender identity, youth didn't always need parental permission to participate and sometimes would come in and have a, a risk reduction counseling session with me and have never had never talked about sex with an adult before and so um, i could see that there was a gap in information that young people were getting across the state and that's been widely known and talked about. I don't mean to be a first person who's thought about that. People have been working for decades on how to increase things like condom access in schools um, and increase sexual health information. And then when we think about queer youth or LGBTQ youth, you know, we know there's still kind of a battle for just getting information out to everybody, but then to make sure that youth who um, aren't heterosexual may not be having heterosexual sex also have accurate information that applies to them so that they know how to keep themselves safe as they get older and become sexually active Um, and so the commission has worked hard on making sure that if schools are going to teach sex ed that it's also inclusive of LGBTQ people in an affirming way and that can be done just in kind of empowerment around gender or sexual identity um, depending on how you know detailed a given school district or school board agrees to be. We just want to make sure that when people are um, teaching and bringing up those policies that they're accurate and applicable to all youth in the room. And so that's something that we um, the Commission was kind of working on as I was meeting with young queer people who had never heard relevant information for them. So I know that that's an ongoing need but something that um, the Commission was having success in and had a lot of support from the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education in as well. Each year the um, head of the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education would send a letter to each school principal um, kind of giving their signature of approval or uh, encouraging them to work with our commission and that it was kind of trusted and that we were going to provide safe and accurate information and work with communities, local communities, in a way that would not alienate parents or even teachers who may not be comfortable with material we were discussing. So that was really key. Another policy the commission worked on was, while I was um, more active, was ID access for young people. So we know that um, an, I, an ID, a photo ID, allows you to access other state services that we might take for granted. To get into a shelter, to sign up for Mass Health, to access food assistance, you need an ID. And if you're a young person who um, hasn't gone through driver's education or hasn't gone that more formal route that people might th- take to get an ID, It can be hard to get a a state ID that allows you to access those services as well as there's a fee along the way. So there's a $20 form to fill out here. There's a $30 form to fill out here. And the commission was able to fund a pilot program that supported a caseworker in community-based organizations around the Boston area and greater Boston area that could kind of walk a young person through that process and cover the fees that they would encounter along the way. And so we had a pilot program for a year where we were able to fund a part of a person's salary to work with youth on ID access, cover the fees, and young people could then get an ID and access a lot of the systems that people have been really proud to create and support in the state. But, but that accessibility was an issue. And I could think of patients of mine that that would definitely apply to.
0: Sure, there's no doubt that all of these things have probably really shaped your um, the way that you provide care as a nurse practitioner in your community health center. Mm-hmm. And so switching gears a little bit, um, now you're you you um, have graduated, you have your license you're you're starting to provide direct patient care mm-hmm. um, you're still working in a community health center that's serving the needs of very vulnerable and marginalized um, populations and so what is it like for you now on a daily basis how are you addressing some of those needs in the community
1: now from the direct patient provider um, point of view yeah I think um you know, going to listening sessions from the commission over the years or gathering youth to speak about what they experience on a daily basis and watching them translate what daily life can be if if you have some of these um, barriers around them, maybe substance dependence or housing. I think hearing youth's ex- young people's experience over the years has helped me as a provider remember when I'm walking into the room what someone's priority might be. So um, my priority might be that a young person has a pap smear at that visit. But maybe they didn't sleep last night because they were sleeping outside and they actually haven't had breakfast and this would be the worst possible day to have someone have an exam that may feel vulnerable. And so I think it's, um, I just try to keep the balance in mind of the structural things that people may be dealing with and that you know whether they're able to keep that referral appointment or meet with the specialist, I think they should see next or complete that exam that I need to check off my list for their care We have to be working together on those two things. Um, So I think paying attention to those um, kind of social needs, even in the context of a 20-minute primary care visit, are really important. And because I've taken a higher-level approach over the last few years, it's easier for me to think about those. I, I better understand the systems people are living and operating in. I hope.
0: Yeah, well, that, those are such great points. So how do, you, how do you balance that? Because I know as a provider here, there are, there's compliance things and there are quality metrics and there's a certain amount of time you can spend with a patient. Um, how do you balance just checking off the boxes and doing what you need to do to be a high-volume, high-producing provider mm-hmm. um, and, and then also meet their social needs and, and really take that approach? When yeah, you have actually seen them.
1: It can be a challenge, especially as a new provider, because I, I want to make sure that um, the quality metrics for my patients look good or that I'm you know doing my job not only for the organization but for my patients as a whole when I look at them as a group. Um, but I'm also meeting a lot of patients for the first time, either because they're new to me as I build out a panel or because I just haven't met them and maybe other providers here have but they aren't available that day. And so I think to build the trust I'm going to need to work on the issues that, I think are important, you know, um, health screening, blood pressure control, cholesterol, these things we know that are really important, but someone may not be feeling on a daily basis. I have to take the time to make sure I'm doing a thorough mental health assessment, making sure I understand whether this person has support or doesn't have support. You know, do they have a partner at home? And if they don't, can I have the medical case manager work more closely with them to make sure that they can take their medication or, um, it's just a kind of ongoing balancing act, and I think I maybe go in with my goals for the visit, but if their goals are completely different, then maybe we can accomplish you know one of mine and one of theirs. Maybe I can help them understand what the, the what's important about my list for the visit, and also help them understand and make them feel like their list is important too. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a balance, but I think by building that trust first, which often comes from addressing the issues that make their life more challenging every day I think in the long run you know my list will get accomplished too Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. I've been trying to think about that but but it can be a challenge especially if you see someone that you know you may not see for another three months because of what they're going through you really want to get certain things done Mm
0: As someone who is deeply involved with policy and advocacy work, both in your past and and even now, I'm, I'm maybe not doing as much of it since you're doing your direct patient care. Um, what ideas do you have for improving the health care system delivery overall, especially when it comes to thinking through some of these more equitable solutions for underserved communities?
1: What we're trying to do is have. Just to be more accessible, I think healthcare access continues to be even in a community health center model really challenging because as providers we need to see a certain number of patients every single day to keep the lights on and um, you know justify a lot of the things that a community health center has to function to keep the business running um, even when you're not when we're really just trying to break even you know so I think there's a there's a div, there's a demand on seeing so many patients a day and um, producing a lot of work. And at the same time, that makes us difficult to access because patients are late and then the whole schedule is thrown off or we don't have the availability we hope we would have. Um, I would love someday to think about delivering health care, even in kind of well-resourced settings in a place like Boston, delivering health care outside the walls of major healthcare care institutions that we think about. Um, I think that going out into the community, whether that's mobile van outreach, which isn't necessarily a new idea, but I don't think we see too much of that now. Um, making sure that patients do see their their healthcare organization, their providers, in the spaces that they're in would, would go a long way to increase um, equitable access.
0: You know. Um... I know that you've you've talked before about an experience you had where you went out and did some HIV testing in a van. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so can you share a little bit about that? Because talk about that is a really great example of, of what you're talking about. How do you um, increase
1: access for these populations? And, mm-hmm. and this is a real-life example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had a study that had tasked us with um, identifying, finding new HIV infections or identifying people who may have been living with HIV for quite a long time, but didn't know it. And that can be a challenge in a city where we think testing is pretty accessible. You kind of have to find the cracks. And we know the cracks are where the epidemic continues because people don't know their status and then share it with others. Um, So we realized that we needed to increase our testing hours, you know, late into the night and we needed to leave our neighborhood. So a colleague of mine and I ran rented, well, rented a van that was kind of outfitted for this kind of testing and we were just doing rapid finger stick testing at that time and we parked it outside of air clubs in the area um, and that isn't uncommon there are some pl- people that do that on a more regular basis in Boston we had learned about a club that was kind of farther outside the city and frequented by people who may be at risk for HIV, who may be non-English speakers, who may be undocumented, and for a variety of reasons, not able to access services that were otherwise available around them. And so we worked with some staff and um, people we met through word of mouth that were willing to go into the club and talk about the fact that we were outside and build some of that trust before they even came in contact with us and help them understand that even in the context of this research study things like legal documentation don't didn't matter there would be no cost they would have a an answer a result right then and there you know we didn't even need to collect information to follow up unless the result were positive positive. and so um we did it a couple nights over a winter and we would test from 11 p.m to 2 a.m and we would stay in the van so that people approached us when they were ready or they wanted to. Sometimes people would be outside smoking and see us and ask about us and then they'd get a test or um, someone inside would have had a conversation with somebody and sent them out to get tested. And we did um, one night identify a new positive and um, she was you know, really kind of surprised and shocked but because she felt like it was a safe private setting We were in her community. She actually had friends there that she was willing to ask support, you know, ask their support that night. We got her contact information, and I gave her my card, and I just said, I hope, you know, I really would love for you to see me tomorrow come to this address anytime you can show up in the lobby. And in research, luckily, we have a little more flexibility than primary care. And sure enough, I went home that night not knowing. You know, I had her contact information, and we were going to do everything we could to find her. We would never want to not be able to get in touch with her again, but I didn't know if she would be the one to initiate it. And sure enough, the next day before noon, she was in the lobby and just said, "You came here to see me, you know." And we were able to get her right in to see a provider, do confirmatory testing, and she was undetectable within two months, probably wow. on medication. And she's still doing very well and has never had a detectable viral load again. So, I don't know when necessarily she would have accessed the more traditional healthcare setting we think of to to get tested, but um, that kind of approach, you know, at least made a difference. Mm-hmm. In, in her life and ultimately her partner's lives in the future too sure that's incredible and, and how was it received you know the this this type of
0: you know setting up and going into the community how do you feel like it was received by the, the clients that were
1: coming in and, and getting tested I think um, at least for the people we saw it was received very well I'm not I wouldn't necessarily have been inside and heard conversations if people said no no way but our the staff we were working with and the team that was inside, talking to folks also had a really positive experience. And I think we were kind of busy all night long. You know, we we would test 25 to 30 people a night. And so people, um, it was a pretty continuous flow. I would say we were received well in that we were able to build at least enough trust to get a test done and um, have people talk to us a little bit about risk reduction or prevention strategies in real time. Mm-hmm. But we had to be efficient. We had to kind of lay the ground rules right at the beginning and address what we thought people might be worried about, financial barriers, immigration concerns, um, the level of contact information they would need to provide. You know, we know that these are all the reasons that people worry about engaging in the healthcare care system to begin with. Mm-hmm. and And transportation, you know, we were able to mitigate just by being right there outside the door in their neighborhood. So I think that in general we were we were received pretty well because we could address and mitigate their concerns up front and then be be efficient and get them information very quickly about their own health mm-hmm. wow it's such a great example of um, eliminating those
0: barriers those structural barriers that keep people from accessing care especially like we were saying with populations that tend to be overlooked by the healthcare system or fall through the cracks or don't feel comfortable accessing care um, so we only have just a couple minutes left, and I'm wondering, um, just as a, as a provider in this space, um, somebody who's really trying to balance um, the, the provider demand, the provider production pressure um, with this heart for really implementing policies that are equitable for these populations, um, what advice would you have for another person in this position? Or, or what are some of the things that you're thinking about
1: on a day-to-day basis moving forward? to make the system stronger? I think um, there's so much of what I really am thinking a lot you know almost every day about about the whole system and then about the individual patient care Um, you know when you go home there's always a patient or two you're kind of thinking about Um, so I think the advice I'd have for first to someone hoping to get into this kind of work is to just learn and learn and learn and um show up at community meetings, show up at forums, you know, learn how this how policy is developed and the data that goes into that policy and understand that these policies, legislation, the decisions that payers make um really are based often in data whether it's financial data or clinical data and so you can be working on these policies in a variety of ways, you know, data collection, training, Um, obviously the implementation side. And I think in terms of what I hope for the future, I think we we have taken some steps to try to control cost, to make even healthcare providers think about prevention as often as we're thinking about treatment, ways that we've attempted to keep our most vulnerable and high-risk people outside of the ER, you know, if they're not having an emergency, but we have a long way to go in the complexity of the U.S. healthcare system and how to, to the best of our ability, help patients overcome that complexity. You know, my goal is that my patient isn't necessarily going to feel how complex their care is. I think about even getting medical records from an outside provider by fax and sending in a referral to an outside provider, making sure they have their visit note faxed so that it's ready, making sure insurance coverage is ready by the time that the visit's booked. Um, those are all, is, is insurance going to cover the specialist? In some cases, a patient has to call their own insurance. Those are all steps that take um, effort from the system, whether it's the provider or the case manager or the patient services member. But hopefully we can make sure that patients, as they move through those steps, feel like the person they're working with cares about them, has their interest in mind, understands what the next step needs to be, you know, may not understand the whole picture, but understands their role or how to get them to someone who can help them overcome the barrier they're working through. So I think it's just that I don't know how, how much power I, as a provider, or even someone as on a commission like the Commission for LGBTQ Youth, has in in single-handedly changing a system that's pretty difficult to navigate. but. I hope that on the patient side, we can make it seem a little more simple. Um, And I've thought a lot about, a lot of my patients have come in and said, well, I was really nervous to see you, or I, you know, looked up a picture before we met, or I haven't engaged in primary care because it just seems so hard to get in somewhere. So patients are already walking in the door having suffered a little bit from a system that they're making a choice not to even engage with. Um, there's a nervousness, there's an anticipation that it's going to be difficult, that they're not going to be heard, that they're not going to get what they're looking for, or that they're going to encounter someone who has a different agenda than they do about their own health. And um, I think a lot about that, just trying to humanize the system for somebody when they're spending that 20 minutes with their healthcare provider. No matter what is happening outside in the hallway or up in billing or downstairs in scheduling, you know I think if we can if we can make sure that the provider and patient interaction is high quality and hopefully smooth out the next steps to get them where they need, that people will feel more comfortable accessing health care regularly and preventing more detrimental health outcomes down the road. Mm-hmm. Wow.
0: This is so great to speak with you, and thank you so much just for sharing everything about your story and how you're working right now to solve some of these problems in our system. Thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Day Health Strategies podcast, Unlocking Accountable Care, Conversations on Healthcare Reform. Day Health Strategies is a Boston-based, mission-driven healthcare consulting firm, specializing in providing timely and effective solutions to complex problems in healthcare. To learn more about our work, please visit our website at www.dayhealthstrategies.com or follow us on Twitter at @dayhealthstrat. Just a reminder, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policies or positions of Day Health Strategies. Our producer and host is Emily George. Editing is done by Kate Gatton. Special thanks to Purple Planet for the use of their songs.